Turn back with me, if you will, to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we continue to walk through uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. A small group of us had the opportunity to um, go to the Barber B. Mann uh, Theater uh, on Wednesday night and and see um, the production of C.S. Lewis. We spent we spent about an hour and a half to two hours with C.S. Lewis in the room, and it was a, a great experience to um, just hear some of the things that he said and um, to be able to imagine yourself in a room with uh, someone of great intellect and powerful faith. One of the things that um, stuck with me in what he was saying, in one of the uh, statements that C.S. Lewis made on Wednesday night was this, and it was actually a statement he made um, probably in the 1950s, um, but the statement was this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And you're here today either because um, your faith is of infinite importance to you, and you want to uh, continue to grow in your faith, or you're here because, well, maybe not because, but you're here and your faith is of no importance. Perhaps you're here just because your spouse asked you to come, or perhaps you're here because your mom or your dad made you come. Uh, or perhaps you're here uh, simply because um, you're playing a role, a role where uh, faith seems to be important, but it, it really isn't. If you're here and your faith is, you think, moderately important to you, then uh, you would be in that second group of faith being of no importance because either you're, you're all in or you're all out. Either um, you love the Lord or you don't. Either you are, um, your faith is important or it's not. Jesus said, you know, to the church, I believe it was the Laodicea church, that you are lukewarm and I spit you out of my mouth. So his statement was very true. Whatever the case, my prayer is that if you leave today and when you leave today, that Galatians 3 verses 1 through 5 will become uh, not only the experience of the Galatians, but also your experience and, and my experience and the, spirits of understand, the spirit, experience of understanding the importance of the cross of Christ by the conviction of the Spirit as a gift of the Father. Just as it was the experience of the Galatian churches to whom Paul's writing in, in chapter 3. And that as your faith began, your faith will end. As your faith begins uh, with the gospel and with the, the completed work of the Spirit and the grace of, of the Father, as you believe in grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, that that will become the mark of your life. And as you remember your experience with the gospel, if you've had an experience with Christ, that that will be a reminder of what Christ has done uh, in your life and in my life. 
Galatians 3 and 4, we begin in chapter 3 today after looking through and walking through chapters 1 and 2. Galatians 3 and 4 make up really the central argument of what Paul is saying to the Galatians. He clarifies the, the truth of the gospel. He, he has been, he's been fighting for the truth of the gospel, hasn't he? In, in uh, chapter 2, it says um, that we did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's fighting for the, the preservation of the truth of the gospel. And we saw last week in, in uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, we saw really the core message of that gospel, that justification or, or being right with God in a right relationship with God. It happens when one believes in Jesus Christ by faith and not by works of the law. We can never repay the debt of our sin. No matter how much we work our way or try to work our way to Christ and to God. Because Christ paid that debt for us. The debt is paid. And our sin has been paid and, and purchased by the blood of Christ. He said it is finished. It is paid in full. He paid the debt. We're declared righteous because of the righteousness imputed to us through the cross by Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's going to expound on that core statement of the gospel, that core statement of justification. And at the end of chapter 2, he's now going to expound on that in chapters 3 and chapters 4. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he's going to begin uh, expounding on that, not with a logically, scripturally uh, outlined basis of what he's going to say. He's not going to say, this is what the Bible says, and this is what you should believe. He's not even going to say, this is what is logical, and this is what you should believe. He's going to begin by asking them several rhetorical questions about their own experience of salvation. He's going to begin by talking about what they have experienced. How did this happen? Think of your own life and how did this happen? And he's going to ask this question. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And the implication of that is that the Spirit comes to a person when the person believes the message about Jesus Christ. And he's going to unpack for us what that actually looks like uh, in these verses. And so we look at these verses, remembering our own experience of salvation. What did that look like for you? When you believed that Jesus is the Christ who died for your sins and shed his blood for you, what did you experience? Because Paul will argue, the way you begin is the way that you end as well. So don't give in to thinking that now you have to complete a salvation that Christ gave you by the Spirit by some way of working yourself toward favor with God. 
Paul's going to say that would be an abomination to the triune God, the holy God to whom we sang this morning, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He talks about them, doesn't he, in, in these verses. In, in verse 1, he says, Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And he's going to make some statements about that. And then he's going to talk about the Spirit. Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So that he's going to include the Son and he's going to include the Spirit. And then in verse 5, he's going to include the Father. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, that would be the Father, and works miracles among you, that would be the Father, do so by works of law or by hearing with faith? So he's going to talk about those three persons of the one essence of the Trinity. And he's going to say works of the law would be to reject the sufficiency of Christ. Works of the law would be to reject the work of the Holy Spirit in your conversion. And works of the law would be to reject the mercy of the Father who sent the Spirit and the Son. So what we want to look at in these five short verses really is, is this. Three lessons from experience to teach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's not works of the law. We're going to see these three lessons, and the three lessons are these, that the cross is central the Spirit is crucial, and the Father is merciful. So let's look at those, and we begin in chapter 3, verse 1. The cross is central. He talks about the crucifixion of God the Son. A couple of observations before we, we jump into um, verse 1. Paul establishes his argument, as we said, through a series of, of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions, questions that that need no answer, because the answer uh, is given by the questions themselves. The answers are obvious to everyone. A rhetorical question is a question that is asked not to receive an answer, but to, to make a point. If you ask a 49ers fan who's going to win the Super Bowl, they're going to tell you the 49ers are going to win the Super Bowl. See there? Or they might say something like, is the sky blue? Is water wet? You see, the point is not the question. The point is the question answers itself. And Paul's rhetorical question is going to be this. Were you saved by faith or works of the law? And that is a rhetorical question because Paul and the Galatians know the answer to that question. Another observation, something we need to keep in mind, remember that Galatians is not a systematic theology. It's not Paul writing down everything he believes about theology and about, uh, about God. It's not his uh, thesis on who God is. Galatians is a letter written because Paul is, as they uh, say where I grew up, Fit to be tied. Fit to be tied is an old saying. It simply means he's, 
somebody is so angry or somebody is so frustrated that they figuratively are, are tied up in knots in their emotions. That's what Paul's experiencing. You know, originally, that saying was fit to be tied and gagged, meaning that they're so frustrated that they can't even speak. Well, Paul is not fit to be gagged because he speaks very well and very clearly. Listen to what he says. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul is shocked. He's shocked and he expresses that throughout Galatians. In chapter 1, uh, verse 6, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished. I am beside myself. I am baffled. You're deserting the grace of God in Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel. And he goes on in verses 8 and 9, and he says, Anyone who preaches that gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Let him be damned by God. And then he comes to verse 3, and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. It's as though he, he gets his emotions out in the beginning of, verse, of chapter 1, and then he has something he needs to say in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he comes to chapter 3, and now he's kind of switching gears a little bit, and, and this emotion comes out again. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That word foolish there is, it means without knowledge, ignorance, not perceptive, not using your minds. You're mindless. You're not thinking. Haven't you read Romans 12? Well, Romans 12 wasn't written then, but we have it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christianity is about clear thinking. It's about transform thinking. Paul might as well be saying, how can you be so stupid? Your sinful heart neglects the truth. Your mind, you're not applying your mind. And maybe it's because your heart is not devoted to the truth. The implication is that they are fa they're failing to draw the obvious conclusion from their own experience. Why? Who's bewitched you? Bewitched. It's a word for uh, witchcraft. It's a his first rhetorical question. Who, who did this? They know who did it. The Judaizers, the, the Jewish missionaries who have come in and said, you trust Jesus, that's good, but now to complete your salvation, you need to do that by becoming Jewish. You need to do that by circumcision. You need to do that by following rituals. And that will complete your salvation. And Paul says, no, that's not it. Chapter 4, verse 80 says, Formerly you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul is saying you're bewitched. Did he, did he actually mean they have been put under 
a curse or did he actually mean witchcraft? It actually, the, the word literally means to exert an evil influence through the eye. There was this belief of an evil eye. You've seen the evil eye of somebody who looks at you that way, the curse of the evil eye. And it was a belief that, that this could happen, but these are, these are believers. Is he actually saying that, or, or, is, he, or is he saying, you know, you're, you're confused in your mind, you're perverted in your thinking? Well, I'm not sure, but it's probably perhaps somewhere in between those two. That the Galatians thinking, this turnaround of what they're doing can only be explained as an evil spiritual influence. Can Christians be bewitched? Paul would say it looks that way. There's evidence that that way because their behavior distorts the gospel. They are adding works to the gospel. Perhaps we would say that um, we are bewitched spiritually anytime we distort the gospel. Anytime we uh, give in to the evil influences. Anytime we make the word say something that it doesn't say. Anytime we believe that any work that makes us right with God is a right work. Because works don't make us right with God. He's saying you are bewitched because you are distorting the gospel. And Paul answers his own question with the first lesson from their experience that, that salvation is by faith alone and not by works of the law. He says this, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Before your eyes, who has bewitched you? Remember, this is what you know. Jesus was portrayed before you as crucified. How do they know that? Well, Paul says it was before your very eyes publicly portrayed. Paul, I believe here, is thinking about when he preached the gospel to them. He gave them an open uh, declaration of the crucifixion. He painted a picture for them of Christ on the cross. I think there's another aspect here that um, possibly could play into this as well. Paul's experience in Galatians and Acts 13 and 14, I think, plays a role in what he's talking about uh, as portraying Christ before them. You remember in Acts 13 and 14, Paul uh, went, first of all, to Antioch and Pisidia, and then he went to Iconium, and then in, in chapter 14, he goes to, to Lystra. Remember the story of what happened to him in Lystra. This was his first missionary journey. This is the area of Galatia. This is what the, where the churches are, we believe, he, he is writing to in the letter of Galatia. And Paul was stoned in Lystra. Remember, they were all saying, he must be a god. And he's saying, no, I'm not a god. Don't call me a god. And then it says in verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They followed him. And having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. They stoned him, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. They thought he was dead. 
Luke doesn't say anything more about that. He doesn't say what happened. All he says is that Paul gets up. Paul gets up. And he goes back and he revisits all of the churches in Galatia. Now stoning, I think this, is, this gives us some light into uh, Galatians. Because stoning is not simply picking up the little pebbles that you see by the lake and throwing them at someone. Many people could survive that kind of stoning. You might have some bruises and, and some cuts, but unless it hits you in the right spot, it's probably not going to kill you unless it's an extended period of time. Stoning was not small rocks. In the act of stoning, someone would either be pushed down or, or thrown down uh, a, a hill, and people on top of the hill would take boulders or big rocks that they could lift, and they would throw them down on the person. And when some, you know, a, a leg was broken or some, some ribs were broken or a, a head smashed, they would go down and they would make sure that person was dead. Paul is assumed as dead, but he gets up. Whether he died or not, I can't say. But this is a miraculous event that Luke is describing in Acts chapter 14. And a couple of details in Galatians indicated, uh, indicate something for us that I think is important in chapter 4 of Paul's reception of his original visit to Lystra and to the churches in Galatia. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says this, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Some of you may have illness in there. The ESV has, has, has described this as a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ himself. What is Paul saying? I think Paul may be saying that I came to you and I was bruised and I was, I was broken and, and my face was, was bruised and there, was, there were scars and, and I had been through a stoning. And I preached the gospel to you. And you looked at me and, and you, you realized what Christ did on the cross and, and my body was nothing compared to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Christ was beaten within an inch of his life before he was crucified. His back was ripped. His organs were exposed. And then he was, a thorn of crowns was pressed on his brow and nails, nails through his wrist and through his, through his feet. And he did that for you. And he says, I publicly portrayed that to you, and you received me as Christ. The word publicly portrayed there is, is actually the word that we would we'd use for a placard. In that, in that day, there was a, there was a, a wall where uh, announcements would be tacked up on the wall. And he's saying, I placarded Christ before you. Not only the message, but even in my body, 
I placard him before you, and you saw that and you accepted that. I preached the saving grace of the death of Christ. It was a physical reality, and, and I preached the substitution of his, his body being broken and what that meant for you. And the reality was you believed and you were transformed. And a system of works diminishes everything that you believed about the cross. And the crucifixion of Christ, it goes on. John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a verse for believers. He's saying Christ did everything necessary to begin and to complete your salvation. So what is the lesson? I think the lesson is this. Don't take your eyes off the cross of Christ. When truly appreciated, the cross of Christ, the, the manifestation of God's wisdom, as Paul says in, in Corinthians, the power of God on display, the grace of God on, his, on display, that should eliminate any kind of human-oriented law that you would want to perform. What is he saying? I think it's just what was said in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, looking to the cross, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Never take your eyes off the cross. What happens if you do? Paul tells us, chapter 1, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The cross delivers us from the present evil age. What else does it do? Chapter 5, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Through the cross, our passions and our desires are crucified with Christ. In chapter 6, verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. George prayed that this morning. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Through the cross, we are crucified to the world. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 and 21, the cross justifies us. And the cross for the Galatians ends a nationalistic Judaism. For Paul, the cross belongs to the new age. And for Paul, for Paul, the law belongs to the evil age. And Paul says there is a new age that has come. And salvation comes through Christ and the cross. So keep your eyes on the cross and never remove them. The cross is central. But the Spirit is crucial. In chapter, in verse 2 through 4, the Spirit transforms, transforms us through the, through the salvation experience. In verse 2, I love this, he says, let me ask you only this. And then he asks them about four or five more questions, like most preachers do. But he, he emphasizes, so let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing 
of faith. In, in verse 3, he's going to say the same thing, really. Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? In verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit for you uh, do that by works uh, and, and works of miracles among you? Do that by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Exactly how did this happen for you? When you came to Christ, did you believe or did you obey the law? Are you justified by faith or are you justified by works of the law? Because the person who receives the Spirit is a person who receives the Spirit by faith. If you receive the Spirit for Paul, the Spirit, receiving the Spirit, it is the same thing as, as salvation. In Romans 8, chapter 9, he actually, he actually says that. Uh, chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. You see, for Paul... Having the Spirit of God is the same thing as salvation. Now, why is that important? Well, one, one reason it's important, Paul says that the Spirit comes at the time of salvation. There's not a, a second blessing, or you don't have to reach some level of spirituality before you have the Spirit. When you are, when you are saved, you have the Spirit. The Galatians know this happened to them. How do they know it? Well, not only the, the inner witness of the Spirit in chapter 4, verse, verse 6, he says, he says to them, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into, your, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Their hearts had changed. Their hearts are now crying, Abba, Father. Before, they, they did not know the Father. But you know, it was not only that, he says that there were miracles. You experienced the miracles that God worked through the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what these miracles were. If they were the charismatic gifts of, of Pentecost, of, of speaking in tongues for this group, it possibly could have been that, or it could have been the miracle that miracles that Paul was working, or it could be the miracle of regeneration. He's saying you have experienced the miracle of regeneration in your life, and the Holy Spirit confirms that. Because your heart is crying, Abba, Father. Whatever it was, the main issue is not that it had happened. They knew it had happened. That answer is obvious. The main issue is how it happened. Was it by hearing of faith or was it by works of the law? And they would have to say, it was by hearing of faith, with faith. So what does that look like? What did you experience when you came to Christ? What did that look like for you? That hearing of faith. Hearing of faith means three things were involved. There was something that you had to hear, and there was faith, and Paul says the Holy Spirit was there. So how did that work? There was a moment in your life 
where you were sitting in a room unbelieving and, and then you were sitting in that same room believing. We've had testimonies over the last months and in those testimonies there were words like, it was as if God opened my eyes. And Paul's saying that's exactly it. There was a time when, when the word, the message, and faith and the spirit came together and you believed. You experience belief because the Spirit is the agent of cause in that experience of faith. Just think of your own conversion. Why did you all of a sudden begin to believe? It was the work of the Spirit. John, 1 John 5.1 says this, Everyone who believes... Present tense. Everyone who believes or is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That is the work of the Spirit in our life. We experienced faith, and it was the Spirit working in our lives. First Peter said, Peter says the same thing. First Peter 1, 22, 25. We won't read that. You can, you can read that later. Jesus is saying, you experience this. You know this. And now are you trying to be perfected by God? some works of the law by circumcision by by rituals are you now being perfected because salvation begins this and ends the same way it begins by by keeping your eyes on the cross and and it ends with you having your eyes on the cross and it begins by the spirit working in you and it ends the same way the holy spirit binds himself to the gospel and does a saving work in the life of the person who is not believing in Christ because of the gospel. And, and Paul is saying, if you take away the gospel, if you change the gospel, if you get the gospel wrong, the Holy Spirit's not going to work. He comes. What is his purpose? We're told to, to glorify God and to point us to Christ. And in verse 1, he says, you, you are bewitched. Christ was plastered before you. Stop trying to live another way than how you received him. The Holy Spirit was, was with Paul in his preaching of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit worked in their lives. The Holy Spirit is crucial. The main work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. And that's how we are saved through the convicting work of the spirit of the truth of the word. He changes, we say, he changes our wanter. What I wanted here, I no longer want here. I no longer want to sin. I no longer want to uh, verbally abuse my spouse. And I no longer want to uh, discipline my children in the wrong way. I no longer want to Look at pornography. Why? Because the Spirit has changed my mind. He's transformed my mind. He's changed my value and my outlook in the world. And he says, now, verse 3, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you now have to add the important part, something that you produce after God has done all of this? You have to produce something? And Paul says, no. You didn't have any experience with the law, as a matter of fact, when I preached the gospel to you. You had never come in contact with the law. 
All you knew is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. What's his main point? His point is this, that living by the power of the Holy Spirit is pursued the same way today as it was when you became a believer. There is a simultaneous act of hearing and believing and being empowered. And our job is to see and believe the promises that God has in the gospel. And the, power, the, the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of the truth of that word. And our actions show that we believe God. We believe, it shows what we believe about him. And it shows that our lives are, are dedicated to him. And our lives give proof of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And he goes on in verse 4, and he talks a little bit about suffering. He said, did you suffer so many things in vain? You may have a translation there that says, did you experience so many things in vain? And there's some uh, discrepancy here. Does it mean, did you experience the cross, and did you experience the, the Holy Spirit, and did you experience all these things and the miracles that are, are being worked among you in vain? I think it may... Um, I think sufferings is, is the more correct translation, although either, either actually uh, makes the point because I would say suffering because in verse 29 of, of chapter 4, he talks about that. He talks about suffering. But just as at that time he was born according to the uh, chapter, yeah, verse 29, according to flesh uh, persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so now also. Uh, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. And he goes on. In verse 29, he talks about persecution. And he says, um, it was just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So he's talking about the unbelievers uh, persecuting believers, and that's a, a normal thing in the New Testament. So I think his point is, did you suffer persecution, whether that was from the Jews or whether that was uh, the normal persecution that happens to Christians in society? Did you suffer that for nothing? Did the Spirit work in your life? He, he could have said, you know, if you had just gone on and converted to Judaism, you wouldn't have had to go through persecution. So was that for nothing? And the obvious answer is no, it was for something. Because those who suffer, suffer for something. It's not for nothing. So the cross is central. The Spirit's crucial. And finally, the Father is merciful. Verse Five, does he who supplies the Spirit, that would be the Father to you, and works miracles among you, the Father working miracles through the Spirit, through the apostles possibly, does he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or the hearing with faith? It's God who performs the miracles. It may be apostolic miracles. It may be the miracle of regeneration. The Father who provides the Spirit. The Spirit is the gift of the Father. 
And that provision there, it, it means abundant provision, a, a lavish provision. It says, are you saying the Father who provided you the Spirit and the Father who worked miracles among you and the Father who sent his Son, does he do that because you do works or because he's merciful by the hearing with faith? You know, if I'm these Galatian churches at this point, I'm saying, okay, Paul, um, I get it. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father, Paul's saying they did the complete work. Nothing was left out. Nothing needs to be added. And the Judaizers, they're attacking the triune God. And Paul's saying it's all by your faith, or it's all by your works. And Paul would say it's by your faith. Because Christ and the, the Father and the Spirit did a complete work of regeneration in your life. Isaiah tells us the Father was pleased to crush the Son. Jesus told his disciples the Father would send the Spirit. The Father, by means of the cross and through the work of the Spirit, is merciful. Salvation is by grace alone. Why would he do that? If he also needed us to work. The obvious answer. Paul would say. Even your experience shows you that salvation is a gift of the father. That comes by faith alone in Christ alone. It's secured by the Holy Spirit. And to deny this. Is to blaspheme a triune God. And Paul says if you do that. Chapter 5, verse 2, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no benefit to you. In verse 4 of chapter 5, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Those would be the tares. Those would be those in the church who look just like those who, who trust Christ by faith. The Galatians knew they were transformed. They had experienced it. Was that for nothing? Could something be added that would make it better? Paul says, no. Don't be bewitched. Remember your experience. Remember your experience of the cross. Remember your experience of the Holy Spirit. Remember your experience of the merciful Father. You did not receive salvation. You did not receive the Holy Spirit. You did not receive regeneration by any work of the law. You experienced it. You lived it. And now, are you trying to be completed by works of the law? That is a blasphemous assault on the triune God. Salvation is ours by faith alone. Life in the Spirit is ours by faith alone. The beginning of salvation and the end of salvation. Paul is going to say both require walking by the Spirit and not the law. So Paul would say to us, as he said to the Galatians, let's keep our eyes 
on the cross of Christ for its central. Let us be characterized by the Spirit because He is crucial. And let us be thankful to the Father for He is merciful. R.C. Ryle said this, It was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, Let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again which at the beginning of the gospel seems to say, let us save man. Salvation is by grace alone, the Father, through faith alone, the Spirit, and Christ alone, the cross. Charles Spurgeon summarized it all in these words, and we close. Let this be to you the mark of the true gospel preaching, where Christ is everything and the creature is nothing, where it is salvation, all of grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, applying to the soul the precious blood of Jesus. Paul describes that great salvation for us in just one page over in Ephesians chapter 1. We close with these verses when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is Christ. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, of, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we are, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory.